It's go time. It's time to say goodbye. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Heath on two fronts. We are saying goodbye. Uh, let's get to where we heard the news yesterday that Gary Stern is leaving his responsibilities as Montreal Alouettes. He's still retaining his 25% share in the team, but he is stepping away from the Board of Governors. He's stepping away from day-to-day operations. There's a lot to unpack with this. It was very sudden, and my first reaction is that I am going to miss Gary Stern as the face and voice of the Montreal Alouettes. He has been a fantastic addition to that Board of Governors and to fan engagement from front office of CFL teams. His Twitter presence, though not always the most polished, has been very engaging and very entertaining. I hope that he continues to be a part owner of the Montreal Alouettes. I am not overly optimistic about it, however, with the remaining 75% in the hands of Sid Spiegel's estate you can't help but think that they're going to start looking for a new owner in Montreal here soon. Really depends on how the estate was set up and, and what controls were set. It's not a simple process for sure. We remember the David Braley ownership of the Vancouver franchise, the BC Lions, and how that played out. And it took some time before Omar Duman could actually get uh, the paperwork done so that he could become a full-fledged owner of the team, getting it from the estate of David Braley, which was going to maintenance the Lions for as long as it took. In the case of the Alouettes, yes, Spiegel's estate is running the operation. According to the Alouettes president of operations, there is no plan in place at this moment and probably not through this season, I would gather that the Alouettes will be up for sale. However, having said that, the CFL, I have no doubt, is now starting to vet interest in the team. And there has been a lot of talk that even before he left, Gary Stern was trying to recruit local ownership. One of the models that you may wish to look at is OSEG, the group that owns the Ottawa Red Blacks. That could be a great model for a Montreal franchise. The last thing I want to see is the CFL as a league having to take control of a team again. We know it's always a struggle when that happens and you you lose some of that enthusiasm for the team, I think, when, when those situations arise. So uh, local ownership for the Montreal Alouettes would be huge and, and I hope for the best. And Gary Stern had some interesting comments in his statement about his departure as well, speaking to his close relationship with Sid Spiegel and his family and how much the sudden passing of Spiegel has really affected him and his family emotionally and has taken the wind out of the sails a little bit of what they hope to accomplish as Montreal Alouette's owners. Hopefully we get somebody else with the kind of enthusiasm that Gary Stern brought to the CFL in the next group of owners for the uh, for the Alouettes. It would be awesome if that could happen quickly. It probably will not because these types of situations do take time. You look at even in the NFL where 
it takes a while for ownership groups to get sorted out. Yeah, Sid Spiegel with uh, Crawford Metals, which he had basically started from recycling and went all the way through the gamut of building that into a very prosperous business. There's still that entity around. So certainly the money side of the equation for the Alouettes isn't an issue. The interesting thing to me, there's two parts to this equation. One is that the Alouettes lost maybe upwards of 10 to 11 million in 2021 in that shortened COVID season. The same season, the Rough Riders across the way made 3.1 million. So what is the give and take on all of that? Why is it certain teams can do well and find a way to make money and others don't? There's certainly a best practices issue here that has to be resolved. The other part that uh, has happened, and if you followed Gary Stern on Twitter, you probably are quite aware, is that there was a little bit of a pushback about innovative ideas for the CFL, and he would not move past on whether or not the league should become four down. When you're an owner, you're also a guardian. That's more than a custodian. You're a guardian. You've got that heritage that you've got to protect. And if you start moving too, too far, you're going to have a strong contingent of CFL fans starting to push back. Absolutely. And we also saw that with Gary Stern and and fans when it came to the head coaching change in Montreal with Kahari Jones being fired and Danny Machocha taking over on the sidelines. Gary Stern was very supportive of Danny Machocha. He took a lot of the animosity and negative comments, I think, towards that whole situation upon himself and continued to put a positive message out there that the ownership group, the the front office had faith in Danny Machocha. This was a decision that they stood by. And, And that speaks volumes to me as far as somebody that is taking ownership and is being the face of the franchise to come out in support in a difficult situation like that as well. Moving across to the second set of goodbyes, the National Football League had cut down day today doesn't mean that everybody that was cut today is not going to be employed in the NFL, but it does mean that a bunch of players that did not make the 53-player roster are going to uh, have much more opportunity to be on a franchise this season. Lots of big names from CFL in the last five years are on that list. There are some interesting names out there, and even though we toss these names out, it does not mean they are on their way back to the CFL per se. They can still be assigned to a practice roster or signed by another team. But a couple of really notable and key components of, of offensive lines were Dakota Shepley cut loose by the Seattle Seahawks and Drew DeJarly cut loose by the New England Patriots. Now, Dakota Shepley most recently was with the Rough Riders in the CFL Drew DeJarly with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We'll see what develops with both of those guys, but I can't help but think those two CFL teams would welcome those guys back with open arms. You can add to that list Jonathan Kongbo, who was also released, and Ryan Hunter. If you want to move to the defensive side, you've got defensive end James Vauders, who played with the Stampeders, Jesse Lucetta, who was a draft in the CFL. He's been waived by the Arizona Cardinals. You've got Jamal Davis, who was also an Alouette released by the Chargers. There's a lot of name recognition associated with this. And of course, the Jets with maybe the biggest. Yeah, this one speaks volumes to how difficult it is to break onto an NFL roster. Chris Streveler was 
a standout quarterback in the preseason games with the New York Jets, throwing for over 500 yards and five touchdowns in three games, leading game-winning drives. The locker room embraced him. The head coach embraced him. And yet, when it comes to cut-down day, Chris Trevler is now on the outside and looking for a job. It's a tough enterprise to to find your way through and and land. And a tremendous story, of course, is Adam Bighill's story that he recounts about his attempts to make it in the NFL, especially with the New Orleans Saints. It's a very, very, as much as there are 32 teams and 1,500 players, it's still a relatively tight community. And it's still a bit of who you know or where you are from that matters. The CFL has a good positive reputation, but you still have to get ahead of the guys that were drafted in the first three rounds if you want to make a team. Chris Treffler has a couple of years experience in the NFL already in a backup role. So again, a little bit surprising, but at the same time, he hasn't had great success in the NFL Even his CFL stint didn't really show promising starting quarterback traits, but here he goes in the NFL preseason and absolutely lit things up. And and to me, it's baffling that a guy that puts on that kind of display doesn't get a shot as at least the third stringer. Brandon Zilstra, who spent time with the Edmonton franchise in years gone by, has bounced around from Minnesota to Carolina now his receiving days in the NFL may be over and does he warrant a look back with Edmonton? My question, I guess, for Edmonton is do they have any money left under the cap to bring anybody else in? They might be sitting in a pretty tough situation there and I don't think that the receiving core has necessarily been the issue this year either. So if I'm the Edmonton Elks, I don't know that a another receiver is the best place to spend any money I might have left. We'll, we'll see what transpires there. One more name I'm going to throw out without any CFL experience is Christian Covington, defensive lineman, who has 98 NFL games played, was a 2015 BC Lions draft pick and is the son of CFL Hall of Famer Grover Covington. Interesting to see if this is the end of the road in the NFL for him, if he draws any interest up here. At 28... I think he's almost at that tipping point of being too old, if you can ever say that about a 20-something. And if they're going to move on from him, then I kind of think at that age, the CFL, he's still got five, eight, ten years left in him. He probably would be coveted by the the league, especially with that pedigree of his father, Grover Covington, probably one of the if not the best defensive lineman of all time in this league. If he's got anything that his dad had, you know there's going to be interest. It, it's a tough day. I mean, Dakota Shepley, I think this is the second or third time that he's tried to get a job with the NFL. And he seems to always get to the final cut, and then he's shipped out again. Yeah, we'll see if he gets any more interest, but he, much like Braden Lenius has re-signed with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. We'll see if Dakota Shepley is in the same situation. I, I strongly believe that the Rough Riders could use some help in shoring up that offensive line. So if he's interested in coming back, I'm sure the Rough Riders are interested in welcoming him, welcoming him back. It really depends on 
and I, I'm sorry, I just don't know, but it really depends on if he was part of that tryout window that the CFL has now. If he was signed with the Rough Riders and then went to that tryout window and, and got an opportunity, then yes, he has to come back to the Rough Riders, uh, as, as Devontae Dedman did with the Ottawa Red Blacks. If you don't have that, in, in other words, he was an, a free agent going into the winter, then he could wind up anywhere. And he might, for all we know, wind up with the Lions, the Elks, the Stampeders. Just depends on, on who's got money left in the budget to sign somebody like that. And this is the, one of the things that I think maybe people have to get their head wrapped around. It's one thing to think, oh, wow, this guy is available. Wouldn't that person help our team? But you've got to have a general manager that's had enough wherewithal and some to a greater or lesser degree have money left over after training camps, after making roster changes early in the season, that they can still sign a big name FA. And you have to think with names like Dakota Shepley and Drew DeJarley, proven starting offensive linemen in the CFL, those are the types of players that are going to draw interest if the money is there. It'll be good for the overall situation if Shepley could land back in the CFL. I know the Rough Riders would be interested, but I'm sure eight other teams wouldn't uh, scoff at him being in their lineup. Now, let's move over. The home front. Typically a place, when you call it home, it's your safe place. It's your place that you feel the most comfort. And yet, in the CFL this year, that's not been the case. 25 of 46 games have been won by the road team. Only four teams have winning records at home. To take this further, two teams in this season have yet to win at home. Every team has lost at home. That is an interesting stat. And one of the big ones we saw, the Blue Bombers' home winning streak end a couple of weeks ago. They're a team that has not lost on the road yet this season. So they are partially responsible for that skewed statistic Edmonton and Ottawa are the real challenges and it's interesting that each has now won in the other team's stadium yet again and both have struggled to win at home it's something that I certainly didn't see coming I thought certainly Edmonton was going to end that home losing streak last week was their best opportunity and Ottawa turned the tables on them and and came into Commonwealth Stadium and and took control of that game just goes to show, though, that maybe home cooking isn't what it used to be. And I'm beginning to wonder, even in the situation of the BC Lions, who had a huge crowd to watch them take on the Rough Riders, I wonder if there's more nerves when you've got more eyes looking at you at home, where on the road, you're away from that. I, I don't necessarily buy into that. I think this speaks volumes to the parody of the CFL that teams are quite capable of winning on the road in their opposition stadiums. There are some some stadiums that are notably tough places for the road teams to play. At the top of those that list would be Calgary, Regina, and Winnipeg are all generally favoring the home team by a, a reasonable margin in, in their season wins and losses. Saskatchewan has certainly struggled at home this year. They had a couple of big losses to the BC Lions. The, the Toronto Argonauts came into Regina and won there as well. So a little bit of that luster is off at Mosaic Stadium. 
this whole narrative that the East is this weak, also ran division continues to be proven wrong when you take road teams from the East coming West and, and beating some very, very tough West teams. And hopefully it takes away some of that opinion that the West is predominantly stronger than the East. I mean, the records dictate right now that yes, generally the West teams are a bit better, but it is a tighter race than we give it credit for. Now that the East is starting to beat the West and those numbers start to even up a little bit, it does justify that the East and West, there is a parity. Winnipeg did something a little bit different, although it's not totally unexpected, but three global players dressed against the Stampeders. Is this something that was a one-off? Is this something that we're going to start to see more and more as global players become stronger at their position? I call this one embracing the initiative. The Bombers have stood out over the last couple of seasons as the team that has had the most success with a global player in a non-kicking role. And again, we saw this past week, Les Morau has been a prominent player, usually used on special teams, but has stepped up in the absence of Kyrie Wilson, who's gone down with a leg injury. Theodric Hansen, another menace on special teams, but also rotates in regularly on that defensive line, does not look out of place. And they also dressed offensive lineman Tomoya Makino this week from Japan. I don't know if he saw any game action against the Stampeders, but he was dressing on the sideline. So it's great to see at least one team that is looking at this as an opportunity to develop talent and not just something that they have to do. And we've seen some other teams guilty of grabbing a punter or a place kicker as a global draft pick, and that's the guy they seem to focus on. But Winnipeg seems to have really taken this in stride and thought, how can we improve our team and take advantage of this? And, and this is a great success story. It is a refreshing look at how CFL 2.0, which was the global initiative, could actually enhance not only the game across the world, but also bring quality players to the league. There always is a rebuff from traditionalists who say that this isn't going to work. Clearly, the Blue Bombers have shown it can and it will. It is a great sort of marker to point to and say if you're the Tiger Cats or if you're the Alouettes, Lions, whatever, that this is a possibility. Not only is it great for the game, but it's going to be great for marketing and other things that the league wants to do too. You don't have to necessarily countenance that as a GM or a coach, but it doesn't hurt. Certainly. And the big news in this one was Morau and Makino both play in the X League, which is a Japanese professional league. So uh, a real nod to that league and the program and player development that they have going for them. And you have to see this as a real positive. Hopefully this news has reached back to football fans in Japan that, hey, there's a successful defending championship football team that has two of our guys signed and dressing in games. That's huge. And we talk about growth and attracting new fans. And this is a great way to get some more eyeballs from around the world on the CFL and celebrate those successes. Another way that this develops is that 
in those communities where those teams are, when word gets back or they get to watch CFL games, that they see their local talent on the field, that generates more interest for other people to say, that's a possibility for me as well. I want to take up this game. And it gets more and more people involved on the playing side, the coaching side. That is just nothing but positive. And I guess the next big step would be one of these players getting a look in the NFL. I don't know if we're quite there yet with the talent pool, but certainly as you start to build this kind of program and this kind of initiative, you start to see some of the success of these guys and and maybe that grows the global audience. And, and we've seen international kickers have success in the NFL as we have in the CFL, but maybe it's time for some position players to start to creep in there a little bit as well. It's been a traditional road for an international player if you want to be in the NFL that you have to go to an American college and get your tutelage there before you make it to the NFL. That has happened for a few players, but for somebody from a different league altogether, I'm not aware of anybody that's made the jump. Not yet. That day will come. Second down. Over 30,000 were in Winnipeg to watch the Winnipeg Blue Bombers start week 12 off against the Calgary Stampeders. The Bombers hanging on and winning 31-29. Jake Mayer going all the way at quarterback for the Calgary Stampeders. 23 of 28 for 294 yards, three touchdowns. Zach Kolaris, 19 of 26, another good day at the office. 294 yards, two TDs, but two picks. Dakota Prukop, one of one for 10 yards and a touchdown pass. Another great game between these two. I would say the leading candidate for game of the season still would be Week 10 BC and Calgary in that thriller. But all three games between Winnipeg and Calgary this season have been right down to the wire. Really exciting and, and a real showcase for what a CFL game can be. This one was certainly the match of their previous two games. The Bombers coming off a bye and coming off their first home loss of the season came out ready to play in this one, but Calgary matched them right down to the wire. And, and uh, like I said, another another entertaining game. Zach Kolaris, his two interceptions, again, he has this tendency to underthrow the ball in plays to the end zone or, or deep passes from time to time that came back to haunt him again. He tried to force one at the end of the first half to put some more points on the board, ended up taking points off by throwing a pick when they were in field goal range, but he recovered well, shook it off and led the team to another win. Calgary had 409 yards of offense, the Blue Bombers 475 884 yards of offense in that football game. The score reflects that. Calgary gave Winnipeg, as you mentioned, everything they could handle. It just never seemed to be that the Stampeders could get a lead and start moving away with it. I think the biggest lead that Calgary had was four points at 28-24. Had they been able to do something more than that, would that have been enough? It was looking like this was a situation where... uh a single point given up was maybe going to be the difference. The Bombers conceded a couple of singles in this one, and were it not for a late score, that would have been the, the difference for them. Another thing that stood out to me was there was 17 offensive possessions total in this game, so both teams moved the ball really well. We've seen games where 
each team has 15 to 17 possessions, two and outs, lots of punting, and that was not the case in this one. Cody Grace only punted four times. Mark Leggio only punted twice. So a real ball control and sustained offense on display in this one. One of the biggest surprises was Winnipeg's defense missed a lot of tackles, which you don't see very often. And that led to the Stampeders' ability to drive down the field on several occasions. For the Blue Bombers, it was their first sweep of the uh, Stampeders in a given season since, I think, 1987, if I'm not mistaken. Winnipeg, with one loss in the season now, moves further ahead into first in the West, and they're almost to the point on this Labor Day weekend where if they win, they're probably locked into a playoff spot no matter what happens. I believe there is a chance mathematically with a Blue Bombers victory that they could secure at no worse a crossover because they have pulled so much further ahead of the teams in the East. And with a loss by the BC Lions, you start counting in the loss column as opposed to the win column, and they've pulled a little bit further ahead in clinching another West Division title. We move across to Toronto and the Friday game between the Tiger Cats and the Argonauts. Hamilton, again, started strong, actually led 16-10 to 10 at halftime. But interceptions, the bane of Dane Evans' existence, those along with fumbles, have proved costly, and they did so again in this football game. Evans, 19 of 30, 244 yards, but three interceptions. McLeod Bethel-Thompson for the Argonauts, 19 of 32, 258, three TDs, and one interception. Jamal Lewis, three picks off of Evans. One goes back for a score to put the game away. Matthew Shields, 13 of 15, 144 yards and a touchdown. He was moving that offense quite well. Unfortunately, he went down with a wrist injury, and it looks like he will miss four to six weeks because of that injury, which is a real tough situation for the Tiger Cats. And it leaves a lot of question marks about that quarterback situation. Dane Evans has now thrown 13 interceptions to 10 touchdowns and has also lost six fumbles. Early in the season, I was looking at a lot of those interceptions that were tipped balls that went out of the hands of the receivers, situations like that. But this past week against the Argonauts, those interceptions and that fumble were all on Dane Evans. He tried to muscle one out of bounds when he was being tackled, laid it up there for a pick, and the other two were well played by Toronto's defense, don't get me wrong, but they were poor attempts by Dane Evans. Toronto's attendance, again, continuing to climb, almost 15,000 at this football game. The Argos, though, have had their preponderance of home dates already played. They've only got two more left after after Friday's contest, so they're going to have to do a lot of their hard work and heavy slogging on the road. One of the keys for the Argonauts is trying to reestablish a running game after the loss of Andrew Harris. We saw AJ Ouellette in the last couple of games be the number one running back, but in this this contest, he had six carries for 16 yards, and that's not going to cut it in reestablishing a running game. The 37-20 win puts Toronto free and clear again into first place in the East. That's something they wanted to have coming out of this. Again, they've got the Tiger Cats on the last of these four games in five weeks. We'll get into that when we get into our picks for next week. Moving on to the late game on Friday night, the British Columbia Lions hosted the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Huge crowd in BC. 
over 23,000. I was at the game. The BC place was rocking. What a festive atmosphere. I would highly recommend if you're in Vancouver and the Lions are at home, go to a game. It's a lot of fun to be at BC place. The Rough Riders who had lost twice to BC in Regina turn the tables and defeat the Lions in Vancouver 23-16. to Cody Fajardo gets the start, goes all the way. For Saskatchewan, 19 of 24, 321 yards, two touchdowns. For the Lions, unfortunately, Michael O'Connor, 6 of 15 for 94 yards, but went out with a groin injury in the first half. Antonio Pipkin, who really hasn't played much, 9 of 17 for 112 yards. He did throw one touchdown pass. This was a night that Cody Fajardo needed. There was some question marks in Regina as to his ability and his health. He kind of put that to bed for one week anyway with a a big night, 320 yards and two touchdowns. Frankie Hickson, 129 yards rushing for the Rough Riders as well. And this is something that we have seen a decline in general across the league this year. So 129 yards is a big night for a running back. He looked great out there, had an 8.6 average and a 22-yard run that he reeled off. A solid night for him. The BC Lions are going to need to figure out how to run that offense without Nathan Rourke. Michael O'Connor might be ready this week. He may miss one more game. We'll see what happens there, but they have some question marks. Both him and Antonio Pipkin had some flashes where they looked quite good and quite comfortable running that offense and they had some other situations where they did not look so good so with that start that the Lions have had to the season they need to get this sorted out to continue that success and push for a playoff spot okay and Schaefer Baker 170 yards and a touchdown one of the big plays for him a tip ball off the hands of Marcus Sales that he caught the other big play for him of course was Saskatchewan reading a blitz. Safety was out of the picture. Cody Vajardo saw it, and Schaefer Baker was open over the middle and took it to the house. The Rough Riders in the fourth quarter finally looked like they knew how to put a game away, even though they didn't score, which has been a hallmark of their season, it seems like, in the fourth quarter. Saskatchewan's defense played quite well in this one as well. One roughing the passer call that came up was led to Michael O'Connor's injury. Darnell Sankey, charged with roughing the passer, seemed to have almost picked up O'Connor as he followed through on the tackle and drove him into the turf. We know from previous games that it's that follow-through that will get the flag. That was the case in this one. Unfortunately for the BC Lions, it was the the play that seems to have injured Michael O'Connor as well. I'm wondering if O'Connor actually got hurt just before that when Larry Dean got him because when Larry Dean pulled him O'Connor sort of had his legs staggered O'Connor looked a little nervous starting the the crowd was very into the game they were so excited the team was on a huge winning streak the of course there's always an uptick when the rough riders are on the road wherever they are they, there's a lot of green that follows it seemed like O'Connor was just a little bit nervous in that first drive then he settled down and unfortunately, he just didn't have enough game time to to make it matter. Now, you mentioned that the, the Lions have time. Of course, they've got the bye coming up this week. They don't play again until after Labor Day. So that's going to help get some healing time in for O'Connor. The one 
I would say happy, sad moment in the game was there was a photo flashed on the big screen of Nathan Rourke in a hospital bed waving to the crowd. He, I just have so much sympathy for. I just wish that that didn't happen and we'd still be seeing what this uh, phenom would be doing this season. Great to see that the surgery was a success. They talked a bit about the orthopedic surgeon that conducted the the surgery on air as well. So nice to see some of those behind the scenes guys get a shout out and hoping for a very speedy recovery and a successful recovery for Nathan Rourke. I think it's a push to get him back on the field this season. It's, It's going to be a long time before he can bear weight and start that rehab process. If he makes it back, more power to him but I certainly hope that he fully recovers and we get to see more of that magic. Dominique Grimes, who had a decent day, five receptions, 83 yards, longest of 35, but he did have two significant plays where he did not hang on to the ball. And Brian Burnham, of all people, struggled catching the football. I think I can count on less than one finger how many times I've seen that before. The Lions really looked out of sorts. Their defense was fine, but they just didn't have an answer when O'Connor went down, Pipkin, you could see that he just hadn't run the first-team offense. On Saturday night, the Ottawa Red Blacks were in Edmonton for the rematch between the Elks and the Red Blacks. Of course, Edmonton had throttled Ottawa in the second half of the last game and walked away with the win. This time, we see what we were wondering could have happened in 2020, Nick Arbuckle starting as quarterback for the Ottawa Red Blacks. 21-32, 219 yards, no other stats to speak of. Caleb Evans came in for one pass, 33 yards. Taylor Cornelius, 14-37 of 37 for 287. It's not often that you have those kind of numbers and still have a big yardage day. Through one interception, Elks taken out 25-18 to 18 by the Red Blacks. The Red Blacks used a huge first half, leading 20-3 to three at halftime to really vault out to a big enough lead that they could manage to hang on to it in the second half. It was great to see Nick Arbuckle get a start and be successful. He's bounced around a lot in the last couple of seasons after showing promise in Calgary. He seemed to be that capable quarterback, but not one that anybody could fit into their system. Out of necessity, he's been kind of thrown into that starting role here in Ottawa. Uh, I'm, I'm happy for him and, and great to see a good night. When you talk about Taylor Cornelius's yards, a lot of that came at the hands of Kenny Lawler. Only three catches, but for 146 yards, a 48.7 yard average and a couple of highlight reel catches that are starting to prove the worth of Kenny Lawler and justify that big contract that the Elks threw his way in the offseason. The two catches that he made were spectacular. He's almost in the stratosphere of Brian Burnham in terms of highlight reel material. The unfortunate thing for the Elks was that Lawler was not available to them in the fourth quarter, and that really hurt them. He was injured at some point. He was on the bench when they needed him the most. That led to more complications for that offense. Another player of note in this one, Devontae Dedman makes his return to the CFL. He didn't bust a long one necessarily. He did have a 42-yard punt return. And 
he looked dangerous. We saw the Elks continue to kick away from him to try to take him out of the game. Even when he got the ball almost in a coffin corner situation where it didn't look like there was much there, he managed to rattle off 10 or 12 yards on the return. So it doesn't look like Deadman has lost a step at all, and I would expect to see him take one all the way back here in the next couple of games. The thing I love about the way he attacks it is he's going forward and he just swerves back and forth between the tacklers. He doesn't waste a lot of energy. And you can't say this often, but he actually has a kick return record that he has taken away from Henry Gizmo Williams. It's the fastest to five kick return touchdowns. He got those in 15 games where it took Hall of Famer Gizmo 18. So hats off to him. We'll see if he can get up into that stratosphere of return touchdowns that Gizmo had in his career. But I believe it was 31 return touchdowns and 20 called back for Henry Gizmo Williams in his career. A long way to go for Deadman, but if he can rattle a couple more off this season, he could be on his way. Unfortunate thing for Edmonton is another loss at home. They are winless at home this year with five straight losses. And that day count continues and I know it's a little bit unfair because an entire season wasn't played in 2020 but that number still exists and they're well past 1,050 days before they have a chance again to win a football game and that'll be against Calgary. That'll be a tough test but I can't imagine how excited those Elks fans are going to be when this streak finally comes to an end. Third down. Okay, Tire, Labor Day weekend is coming up. We got four big games in the uh, Canadian Football League. Starting with Friday night, no more Thursday contests. The Ottawa Red Blacks, fresh off their win in Edmonton, going to Montreal, who had that big comeback win over Hamilton a couple weeks ago. The Alouettes are minus 4.5 favorites at home. This is a tale of which Ottawa team and which Montreal team we are going to see this week. Both have been very unpredictable, up and down a little bit. I have to give the nod to the Montreal Alouettes. The way that they played two tough contests against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, including a win. They seem to be trending in the right direction. Trevor Harris is leading that offense effectively. And when that defensive line is going for the Alouettes, they are one of the best in the league as well. So I believe the Alouettes win this one, cover the spread, unless Nick Arbuckle has a lot more to give for that Ottawa Red Blacks team. Just the fourth time that Ottawa has faced an Eastern opponent this year. The Alouettes are 500 within their own division. You're right, the defensive line could be the key to this whole process Michael Moore especially if he has a a big night then Ottawa's in big trouble if Ottawa can figure him out and let's say that they can get some big plays out of Arbuckle to Nate Bahar Ryan Davis guys like that then maybe Ottawa has a chance the one caveat that I would toss into this is turnovers if Harris is off and is throwing interceptions Ottawa's defense is more than capable of of making a long night for him. This is an opportunity for the team that wins this game to start to push for that third playoff spot in the East. 
as you mentioned, Ottawa hasn't played a lot of Eastern opponents yet, so they've got a very division-heavy schedule to come down the rest of this season. They start knocking off wins against Eastern opponents. All of a sudden, they're back in that playoff picture. Ottawa has played seven times in the West, most of any team from the Eastern Conference. That does mean that their fate is in their own hands. If As they go forward through the rest of the season, it will make a big difference in terms of where they can finish. Now, third place, will it be available for a playoff spot, especially when the fourth place team in the West right now has six wins? That's a long way to, to come back. Hamilton with two wins over Ottawa at this point are in a better spot, but we talk about the inconsistency. The Tiger Cats, who play so well in one half, can't do it in the second half. Who do you trust more? In this one, I'm going to, even though road teams are doing well, I'm liking the Alouettes at home. I think the energy that they found against the Tiger Cats couple of weeks ago is going to carry over. There should be a big crowd there. There's going to be people traveling from Ottawa because the Red Blacks had won. That should be a rocking stadium. Even with that, though, if Harris finds the form he did against Hamilton, which was a pretty good defense, then I would think that Montreal should prevail. We move to Labor Day Sunday. And the traditional Saskatchewan Rough Rider versus Winnipeg Blue Bomber Sunday afternoon contest. The Riders have had the preponderance of wins in this game, but the Bombers have won the last two. Winnipeg, with their one-loss record, goes into Saskatchewan at 3.5 favorites. Some will say you can't trust anything going into Labor Day because even a 0-10 Rough Rider team could take out a 10-0 Blue Bomber team. That's the mythology. How does it play out? Labor Day in Saskatchewan is absolutely one of the wild cards in the CFL. Winnipeg seems to have figured out how to win at Mosaic, however. They've had some success in the playoffs and the Labor Day games over these last few seasons. I made a vow a couple of weeks ago to no longer doubt Zach Kolaris. If Zach starts, I pick the Bombers to win. Even though I've come out of Labor Day games disappointed in the past, I am going to stick to my guns. I'm going to pick the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in this one, and they will cover the three and a half point spread. On the Rough Rider side of the equation, Shaq Evans, I'm not sure if he's going to be in this game or not. He was available against BC. They chose not to dress him. Dekeel Williams should be back in the lineup. That will open up that Rough Riders offense. If Fajardo has found some revitalized energy, then that knee holds up. That's going to be the biggest question because if that Blue Bomber defensive line, Jefferson or Jeffcoat, get through to him, how does he take a hit? That could really dictate how the Rough Riders play. The Riders and the Blue Bombers have had very meaningful games. They've used as you've alluded to, playoffs and Labor Day the last few years. Saskatchewan, I think, has a bit of an axe to grind against the Blue Bombers because of the Western Final and the Western Semifinal. I'm looking for the Rough Riders probably to have enough motivation to win this football game just because it's at home, just because it's a sold-out Mosaic Stadium. And it's going to be boiling hot that afternoon. The Riders are in the shade. The Blue Bombers are in the sun on the opposite side. That's why I'm picking the Rough Riders. I think the Blue Bombers may wilt. 
Rough Riders receiving core is the difference maker in this one. Absolutely, if Fajardo can find time to get them the ball, they've got some pieces coming back into that lineup that could be pretty dangerous on offense. Monday, fourth and final meeting, at least in the regular season, between the Toronto Argonauts and the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Now, this game traditionally sells out in Steeltown. The record for the Tiger Cats is not lending itself to a lot of enthusiasm. However, there is going to be a huge crowd at Tim Hortons. The Tiger Cats are minus 1.5 favorites. Of course, they had lost to Toronto, then won the last time these two met. Here's the same scenario again. Dane Evans went out in front of everybody and said, the reason why we're losing, it's because of me. I can't make these mistakes. Wonderful leadership, owning it, fantastic. But mentally, he's got to find a way to get past all that and become the on-field leader that he was in 2019. I don't think I've had much success in picking winners in this Toronto-Hamilton three-game series thus far. I was successful last week picking the Toronto Argonauts to win, and I'm going to stick with that and pick them yet again to come into Hamilton and win this one. I, I believe... The loss of Matthew Schiltz is a hit to the Hamilton Tiger Cats. They seem to be a little bit in disarray on offense, and Dane Evans is struggling. I, I hope he turns it around, but this week for the Labor Day Classic, I'm sticking with the Argonauts. Tiger Cats at home are 3-2. and two. The Argos on the road are 1-2. and two. Not a huge sample size for the Argonauts on the road. This is a very short trip. If you're not familiar with Toronto and Hamilton, we call it the 401 or the QEW rivalry, but the two teams are literally 50 minutes apart if you drive the distance between the two. So there's a lot of animosity between the two centers built in. And the fact that this is the fourth time that they've met in five weeks wouldn't be surprised at all if there's some misconducts in this game just because they're sick of looking at each other question in my mind is which McLeod Bethel Thompson we're going to see the one that pulled it out against the Tiger Cats last week or the one that got them in the big hole against the Tiger Cats last week he's such an enigma but if he is on from the start I've always argued this if McLeod Bethel Thompson he seems like this great machine that has to get rolling and once he gets going then he's okay but if he can speed that process up maybe go to electric start or something he could help his Argonauts if they can get out in front. What might be really interesting in this one is if Hamilton jumps out to a lead. The Argonauts have the edge in the season series right now. They're a plus 24 in points. So in order for the Tiger Cats to win that season series, they're going to have to win by 25. If that offense starts firing, you want to see Chippy, a blowout game where Hamilton continues to try to push for points to win that season series. Things could get ugly. It, it makes for a very interesting situation if the Tiger Cats, say, are up 14 going into the fourth quarter. What do you do? You don't want to sit on it. You want to do something with that lead. 11 more points is on the table. Go for it. I'm, I'm leaning towards the Tiger Cats at home just because it's Labor Day, just because the Tiger Cats always seem to win Labor Day, and there's so much at stake. This is kind of Dane Evans' litmus test if he's going to be the starter the rest of the way he has to prove himself I don't think the patience is there anymore the 
one thing that maybe buys him time, unfortunately, is Matthew Schiltz not being available. But don't be surprised if the Tiger Cats start looking for another quarterback if Evans doesn't perform well on Monday afternoon. Edmonton Elks are in Calgary. Calgary is 12.5 favorites going into this contest. That's almost Winnipeg Blue Bomber territory. A lot of faith, I guess, being put in to Jake Mayer. Traditionally, this game, Calgary wins at McMahon Stadium. There should be a big crowd at McMahon Stadium. should be boisterous, as all these Labor Day games are. It's it's the sort of the turnaround weekend for the CFL where everybody's been building, and now this is sort of it. You've got your rivalry game on, on the big weekend, and then you've got to vault forward to start moving towards the playoffs. And this is huge for momentum for so many teams. And the Stampeders want second place. And if they're going to catch the Lions, this is where they have to start doing it. I love Labor Day Classic weekend. It's so unpredictable. You mentioned Calgary does have the edge and tends to win these games at home. But anything can happen. My biggest concern is the 12 and a half points. I don't, I can't give 12 and a half points away in a Labor Day Classic game. I believe the Stampeders win this one. I think Edmonton keeps it close enough that they they beat the spread. The question will come down to Taylor Cornelius and how effective he is against that Calgary defense. The Stampeders now have had a couple of weeks without the middle of that defense being available to them. the Stampeders still have a very strong defensive line. The 12.5, ugh. Not a big fan of that. That's We're recording course on Tuesday, probably by Sunday or even Monday morning. That may be coming down, depending on, on what players Chris Jones has brought into the Elks locker room. But yeah, Calgary to win 12.5. That means two touchdowns, basically. That's a big win. Ugh. Okay, I'll go for it. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.